Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Close Readings podcast. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizade, and it's my great pleasure to have Stephanie Burt on the podcast today. Hi. Uh, hi, Steph. I'm your, I'm your guest, Stephanie you... Burt. <laughs> welcome. You are my guest. You're all of our guests uh, now. So um, Stephanie is, as I'm sure many of you know, a professor of English at Harvard University, um, where she works on uh, poetry, especially poetry of the 20th and 21st centuries. But, um, but that is uh, but the tip of the iceberg. Um, Stephanie also works on science fiction, on literature and geography, on contemporary writing of all kinds, on comics and graphic novels and literature alongside other arts. Um, and uh, Stephanie is um, not the first guest we've had of whom I can say this, but but one of the first still. Uh, in addition to being a wonderful poetry scholar and critic, Stephanie is a, a poet in her own right. Um, and uh, I hope that we'll be able to... Um, appreciate that dimension of her work in the conversation that we have today. Uh, let me, let me tell you since about you the, said it was, oh, since you ahead. said that you were offering the tip of the iceberg, I feel like I should add that we would rather have the iceberg than the ship. <laughs> That's an Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Bishop, uh, reference. Yeah. Uh, good. Um, so, um, the, the poem that Stephanie's chosen for us to discuss today is called the player piano. Uh, and it's it's a, a poem that the 20th century American poet Randall Jarrell wrote very near the end of his life, I believe. And we'll I'm talk thrilled. about it. Yeah, good. I'm thrilled to talk about it. Um, I'm thrilled to talk about it with her. As always, uh, uh, for those of you who would like to look at a text of the poem, as you uh, listen along, I will um, put a link or an image um, uh, or a link to an image of the poem in the show notes so that you can access it that way while while you listen. Uh, Steph is the author of too many books for me to name, probably, and I don't know if if it makes sense for me to separate them into these categories. But uh, for the sake of clarity, let me say that her books of poetry include uh, Parallel Play, which came out in two thousand six, Belmont in twenty thirteen, Advice from the Lights in twenty seventeen. After Callimachus in uh, 2020, for all Great mutants. Great time to publish a book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for all mutants, 2021. And most recently, uh, from Grey Wolf uh, Press, We Are Mermaids uh, in 2022. I was going to say this year, but it's not 2022 anymore. It's now the future stuff. Um, it is. It is the future. Yeah. Her, um, her critical and scholarly books include, well, a a book that is quite relevant to our discussion today, Randall Jarrell and His Age uh, from Columbia in 2002. But Steph is also the author of the books, The Forms of Youth, uh, Close Calls with Nonsense, The Poem is You. Uh, the Poem is You, it strikes me, is a, is a book that um, people who are enjoying this podcast might also enjoy because in that book, um, Steph offers a kind of anthology of contemporary poetry with uh, brilliant close readings of those poems um, Thank you. Um, that accompany them. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Um, it's a great model for, uh, for the kind of attention in writing that I hope that we're performing here in conversation. That's the idea. That's yeah. the hope. Most recently Steph, uh, in terms of her critical work um, is the author of a book called don't read poetry, which um, was published in 2019 and has 
uh, I, I believe, an accurate but misleading title. Um, well, there's a wa- subtitle. Yes, I there's know. Sub- Stephanie, yeah. Stephanie wants you to read poems, not poetry. Um, Bing. That's right. So, um, and you can you can look up that book to understand the distinction she's drawing there. I think it's a, a salutary one. Mm-hmm. Um, Steph also regularly reviews contemporary poetry in places like the New York Times Book Review. Yeah. Um, her writing also has appeared in the New Yorker, the London Review of Books, the Yale Review, um, and and other places besides. And and I just want to say before we get started here, in earnest, that I don't think I know another poetry critic with the energy of Stephanie Burt. And and by that, I mean the capacious attention and attentiveness to her, well, not just to the, to the varied, the wonderfully varied landscape of contemporary poetry and of 20th century poetry, but an attentiveness to her own tastes and prejudices, a, a willingness to situate not only a book or a poet in its context and landscape, but to situate her own, I mean, Steph's own aesthetic judgments in the context of poetry reading. One and tries. Of, and of I'm, kinds I'm of also, poetry reading. I, I do yeah. need to situate my aesthetic judgments in the context of our recording and get a little bit meta here. Yeah. The line next to my name is not moving at all. Oh, is that's that okay? okay. Yeah. I don't think you should worry about that. On my screen, it's moving quite a bit when you talk. And I think that's just a feature of this recording technology and i'm sure it will be fine stuff if it's um, the same as when you did uh, Lindsay's bishop thing yeah, yeah. then yeah then we're good we're good we're good um are we are we good now <laughs> we are <laughs> your line is moving don't worry steph i can hear you we we all can hear you um and i think that you know if, if i could say one last um word of introduction it would be to say that our guest today has been one of the English-speaking world's great caretakers of poetry in the last two decades, and so it's just a thrill um, to have her here on the podcast. Stephanie, um, how are you today? A little bit flattened by that description. I mean, I'm really, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm flattened. also I'm not seeing any waveform here at all when I speak. But this, if this is what always happens, yeah, don't worry about. I I I, I, I worry a lot. T- I should take a screenshot for you and text it to you or something so you can see it's the impressive, good. the impressive way. No, I'm, I'm, I've really enjoyed catching up on the episodes. Yeah. I've, I've heard a, a couple now that, that you've done yeah. and, and it's, it's really quite a service that you are providing here to the world of actual and potential readers of poetry in English and not just modern poetry, although we are. Yeah modern in some ways here and romantic in others. And as Jarrell really tried to be athwart a lot of the distinctions that we use to think about what periods sound like and what's appropriate at different points in the writing of poetry. Is this a good segue for me to just read the poem? Well, that was going to be my next question for you. So I appreciate your very kind words about the podcast. But yeah, let's um, let's hear Stephanie read the player piano and then um, and then we will talk about it. The Player Piano by Randall Jarrell. And I'm, before I read it for the first time, I, I am doing what I should always do and only do half the time, which is to gloss things that will appear in the poem. Okay, please. And you should probably know that this is a poem that was written in the early 1960s. So when you hear the word gay, it 
certainly does not have the primary meaning of wanting to smooch people with the same gender. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, that meaning would not have been inaudible necessarily to a reader. It doesn't seem to be the primary meaning here. Yeah. It is certainly not the yeah. primary meaning. Yeah, fair enough. The word is in use to mean wanting to smooch people of the same gender, right. but uh, it is, is not the primary meaning here. Um, Pancake House is capitalized. It's like a waffle house. It's a, a chain of casual restaurants. Mm-hmm. The character speaking the poem uh, is an older American woman. Mm-hmm. And um, Fatty Arbuckle is a famous director from Hollywood in the 19-teens and 1920s who was uh, notorious for a scandal, a kind of tabloid scandal. And the details of the scandal you can easily look up. Right. That's probably all you need here. Well, is it also worth it stuff to say? I mean, while we're glossing things... And maybe you want to talk about this after having read the poem. And if that's your choice, that's fine. Maybe not everybody knows what a player piano is. Ooh, wow. Time marches on. Yeah, good call. A player piano is a piano that has a mechanical spring-driven device in it that allows it to automate itself so that it makes music with no one there. And there are people who have composed kind of composed music for, for player pianos, but they were very much associated with salons and saloons and informal music listening in the early part of the 20th century and with ragtime. Right. Right. So before um, phonographs and record players and so on made the, the prospect of bringing recorded music into your home a much easier and more portable and affordable thing to do, let's say. Yeah, yeah. They, they were popular before phonographs were very good. Right. Okay. They're, they're, yeah, they, they over, their popularity, I think, overlaps with 78 RPM sort of shellac discs, but they're very much a, a turn of the 20th century sort of thing. Great. Okay. I think all of that is very helpful. But yeah, now I'm very eager and I'm sure that our audience is very eager to hear you read the poem. The Player Piano. I ate pancakes one night in a pancake house run by a lady my age. She was gay. When I told her that I came from Pasadena, she laughed and said, I lived in Pasadena when Fatty Arbuckle drove the El Molino bus. I felt that I had met someone from home. No, not Pasadena. Fatty Arbuckle. Who's that? Oh, something that we had in common, like like the false armistice. Piano rolls. She told me her house was the first pancake house east of the Mississippi, and I showed her a picture of my grandson Going home, home to the hotel, I began to hum, smile a while, I bid you sad adieu. When the clouds roll back, I'll come to you. Let's brush our hair before we go to bed, I say to the old friend who lives in my mirror. I remember how I'd brushed my mother's hair before she bobbed it, 
How long has it been since I hit my funny bone? Had a scab on my knee? Here are mother and father in a photograph. Father's holding me. They both look so young. I'm so much older than they are. Look at them. Two babies with their baby. I don't blame you. You weren't old enough to know any better. If I could, I'd go back, sit down by you both, and sign our true armistice. You weren't to blame. I shut my eyes, and there's our living room. The piano's playing something by Chopin, and mother and father, and their little girl, listen, look, the keys go down by themselves. I go over, hold my hands out, play, I play. If only somehow I had learned to live. The three of us sit watching as my waltz plays itself out a half inch from my fingers. Stephanie, that was a gorgeous reading of the poem. Thank you so much. I need to recover from that. It's, <laughs> it's a poem that always absolutely just blows me away. It, it really, I, I cry a lot now for very yeah. good reasons. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, you know, it blew me away when I first read it when I was probably about 16 or 17. And I, it has lost, honestly, none of its power. Um, and I, I don't know where to start with it. It, it has yeah. so many ways in. Yeah. And I'm looking what? up something. So if it comes up. No, that's can, okay. There we go. So okay. well, let, let me, and maybe by way of um, letting us take a breath and um, after that, after that marvelous reading, just back all the way up for a moment and let's not let's assume, let's not assume that our audience knows anything about who Randall Jarrell was. And I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind Steph um, just situating us. And, and I mean that maybe in two ways, like first, can you tell people a little bit about um, where Randall Jarrell fits into the um, the literary and poetic history of 20th century letters? Um, so that's one question. Um, and he's a contemporary of people like Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell, these John Barryman. Yeah. These might be poets that um, people have heard of a bit more these days than, yeah. than Jarrell. So that's one question. And then the other question maybe having um, uh, addressed that would be um, to say a word just about where this poem might fit into Jarrell's life and career. Sure. Yeah, thanks. So Jarrell's born in 1914 uh, and he dies in 1965. He's from Tennessee and California. He's often thought of as a Southern writer, but he really thought of himself as a California writer. He spent the I was going to say the happiest, but it's probably better to say the only happy years of his childhood living with his grandparents in what we now think of as the greater Los Angeles area. He encountered quite young at Vanderbilt University in the 20s and at and, and 30s and at Kenyon and Kenyon College in the late 1930s. The set of people who would 
also shaped Robert Lowell's career and who would do a lot to shape how colleges and universities teach the reading of poetry after the war. And he became friends with Robert Lowell quite young. They were, they lived in the same house in Ohio in the late thirties. He later after the war and after some time in New York became quite good friends with Elizabeth Bishop. And he wrote about their early books very, very effusively and very admiringly and very insightfully. And he was probably the first person in the world to predict that Elizabeth Bishop was going to be the major poet of that generation and that cohort, that Elizabeth Bishop was the person whose poems were really going to last, not just as one line or one anthology piece, but as a real body of work. He even, even in a moment, I want to say when to contemporary readers, Lowell would have seemed like the, a major figure and Bishop, like a decided kind of minor, minor, yeah. minor female Wordsworth, as Bishop called herself. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Jurel also had a lot to do with building up the early career of, of Lowell. He was Lowell's first reader for a lot of Lowell's early poems, and he wrote very admiringly and thoughtfully about early Lowell. So he was really thought of as part of the poetry establishment by the end of the 50s, but in a weird way, because while he wrote very good and I think they've held up well and award-winning a little bit poems about the Second World War and about the, the people who were serving in the armed forces during the war. Including him, right? He served. Including him. Yeah, right. He did serve. He uh, never saw combat and never went overseas. Instead, he trained people who would fly bombers and then get shot down. And he wrote a lot of letters that you can go back and read about what it was like to be in the armed forces during the war. But he was primarily known for his entire adult lifetime as a critic. He wrote very cutting and some people thought mean-spirited reviews of poets he didn't like at a time when the poetry world was very different. And he's remembered today, and he was admired in his time, for writing brilliant longer pieces that were extraordinarily sympathetic and informal and inviting about the poets he did like, about Lowell, about Bishop, about Walt Whitman, who at the time was extremely uncool and kind of thought of as, as, you know, not one of us and dodgy and, you know, maybe even gay, Uh, about Marion Moore. He was one of the first people to write very well at Marion Moore. Um, He really, about Robert Frost, Mm -hmm. uh, he, if, if you think you don't like Robert Frost, if you think Robert Frost is not a great poet, or not a profound poet, you can go read what Jarrell wrote about Frost and be persuaded. If you don't like Robert Frost because he scares the heck out of you, join the club. Uh, but but Frost was important to, to Jarrell, and Jarrell really was someone who described the non-avant-garde landscape of American poetry and to some extent of British poetry of Auden. Uh, better than anyone else at the time did or could. But he went on writing his own poems. He wrote a campus novel, a very funny one. He wrote essays about the state of culture and the way that post-war culture was changing. 
He wrote children's books. He wrote wonderful children's books towards the end of his career. He wrote four of them. Uh, the Bat Poet is the best known. It's very sad. All his children's books are sad. Uh, the Animal Family is the least sad and the longest, and it's my favorite. I love it too. Yeah, he he, yeah. he was an early collaborator of Maurice Sendak, and they mm-hmm. worked together quite well. Um, and in the last five or six years of his life, he wrote, what would be his last two completed books of poetry, his last two published books of poetry. There's a good deal of unpublished late work, which we can talk about. Yeah. Uh, but he wrote what would be his, his last two and his best two books of poetry, which focus quite intensely on the experience of being older of aging, of entering your 50s, 60s, 70s, as his characters did, uh, and of childhood, of remembering childhood and being someone who's connected to childhood and who really feels like he in some ways missed growing up and feels connected to fairy tales and has very little in common with the adult men around him. That's the vibe that you get from a lot of those late poems. Well, well, those those themes seem really present in the poem you've chosen for us yeah. today. Yeah. Do you have yeah. did you have more to say, Steph? I didn't mean to cut you cut Just off a your little biography. Bit. Yeah, please. Just a little no, bit. Go on. He's he his his late poetry was very unsettling and received some negative reviews when it came out because people didn't know what to do with it. He was not a uh he did not present himself as the authority that he was when he was writing his poems and he was not making obviously sort of shapely compact well-defended objects Hmm. and he certainly wasn't making frame-breaking late modernist avant-garde blow everything up start again things he was participating in a, a romantic capital r romantic tradition of just trying to get the personality onto the page and having the technical effects, which are subtle and profound, rise up on rereading. And my experience of rereading his work over most of my life at this point has been that some kind of cool technical effect, some verbal repetition, some set of allusions and quotations that you can trace, some way in which the beginning of the poem is in dialogue with the ending, Something about this as a, a made verbal object just pops out, mm. but the the there's a, a beating heart that's right out there. He exposes himself. He makes himself vulnerable, and we can. There's a lot more to talk about. We can talk yeah. about his his sense of families and parenthood. Sure, uh, people generally, when I talk about him these days, want me to talk about gender. Which okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I suppose I, I, I'm I'm guessing I know what you mean by that, which is that, the, um, uh, well, among other things, that in some of his most memorable poems, he he writes dramatic monologues from the perspective of a woman. Yeah, at, at this this one yeah. among them. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. And it strikes me that uh, that he's not alone among the even among his friends, male poets of his generation, in doing that. That Lowell Lowell did that. Um, Berryman did that. 
Um, though though Jarrell's version seems interesting in other ways, maybe. Well, Jarrell made sounding like a disappointed white middle-aged adult woman, one of his central aesthetic goals. <laughs> Great. He did it over and over. Yeah, great. So we're uh, gonna with, we're we're gonna have to talk about this at some yeah, with, point. With, yeah, yeah. With 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 Lowell, I think you're thinking about um, some of the the dramatic monologues in the yeah. Mills of the Cavanaughs. Yeah, Mills to the which Jarrell responded, "A woman would talk like that if she were Robert. If she talked like Robert Lowell, but right. whoever heard <laughs> a woman who talked like Robert Lowell? Right, um, right, right. All of and, Lowell's and, poems sound like Lowell. That's right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, even the ones where he's translating. Yeah. Um. Um, and yeah. Okay. So, well, enough about Lowell, and and um, and let's 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 bring it back to Barry. Uh, to, sorry, not to Barryman, to, to Jarrell. Um, I guess. What, sorry. Wh- one further last question about biography that I have for you is: Is it worth saying anything in your view, stuff about the circumstances of Jarrell's death? Yeah. Sure. Fine. Um, he uh, had. I mean, was... you could have said no. <laughs> that would have been okay. No, because then you just have people Google some nonsense. Yeah. Okay. Um. I mean, I spent part of today listening to Nirvana, people who die in dramatic and notable ways. Yeah, yeah, Unfortunately, yeah. it becomes part of what happens when you Google mm-hmm. them and it becomes mm-hmm. attached to the art. Mm-hmm. Um, Jarrell, during the early 1960s, struggled with depression and was prescribed the mood elevators and mood stimulants that you would expect uh, from someone who had good access to Psychopharm during that period. He was prescribed Elevil which turned out to be the wrong drug for him. Uh, anyone of anyone among us who's had some experience with trying mental health psychopharm and being on the wrong stuff might be able to relate. Uh, so the Jarrell starting at about 19, late 62 or 63, around the time he was finishing his last published book, um, started to have what we would recognize as a manic cycle, mm-hmm. which he'd not had before. His friends had, of course, but he hadn't. Um, followed by a depressive period when he was hospitalized in 1965 after slashing his wrists. Uh, And while he was recovering in the hospital, he took a walk on a dark road at night and was struck and killed by an automobile. And no one will ever know Mm -hmm. whether he meant to be struck and killed by an automobile. Yeah. Uh, but it's certainly possible. Mm-hmm. And it came, of course, as a great shock to his friends and a great source yeah. of sadness to literary community. Yes. Yeah. Okay. There, there are many, many memorial poems for him, including I've recently learned one by Audre Lorde, which oh, I didn't know that. Wouldn't expect. Yeah. There's a ton. Robert Haas wrote one. Mm-hmm. Lowell wrote four. Yeah. Berryman certainly wrote dream songs. Um, yeah, on, on that occasion. Okay. Well, let's 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 come back to the poem now. So that's a lot of let's. very use, useful context, but um, yeah. But let's come back to the poem. Um, I mean, I have a number of questions for you, Stephanie, and I also want to be guided by your way of of getting into this poem. And I know that you've um, you you probably have ways in that feel productive to you. I guess uh, just as a first question, though, I was so struck in the. I'm sorry. And if you're not, so if you're not looking at the poem, maybe it's worth it to say um, that the poem is, um, is in stanzas of five lines, um, which gives it a kind of um, 
perhaps a more neat and orderly appearance on the page than what we hear when you read it aloud. Um, But in that first stanza, um, Mm -hmm. this moment of conversation, when I told her that I came from Pasadena, she laughed and said, I lived in Pasadena when Fatty Arbuncle drove the El Molino bus. I felt that, and so now the second stanza begins, I felt that I had met someone from home. No, not Pasadena, Fatty Arbuncle. Who's that? Is, the, the question I have for you is, who is the, the poem's implied, like, who is this woman talking to? Who is her implied, who's the implied reader of this poem? And, so, and maybe say something about, like, what's going on with, the, with all the proper nouns that are circulating in the first, you know, two stanzas of the poem. So I think she's imagining that she's speaking to a younger interlocutor. But she's not. And by the end of the poem, it's clear that she's talking to herself. But she's certainly imagining someone else in between, if you have the poem in front of you, line seven and line eight, saying, who's that? Because younger people, people who might be teens or in their 20s or even in their 30s in the mid-1960s would not necessarily know who this director from the you know late silent film era right. was. And it's a moment, one of many moments in, in the poem where her attempt to construct her life as a story of events and people that that cross her path over time, her attempt to see herself as this coherent figure whose life means something, who's changed the people around her, who's, who's done something. She's trying and she's failed. And maybe she's failed in the way that we all fail. Or maybe she's failed in a way that is about her. And her first indication that maybe she has failed is when she realizes that these landmarks for her, these memories that have shaped her life, are as... They say in Blade Runner, lost like tears in rain, right? They're they're just gone. They're just they're not going to be there for the next generation. Where where do you see that or hear that realization setting in? Or what are the earliest signs of its setting in for you in her monologue here? Where where she realizes that maybe her life doesn't matter and 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 has this kind of existential sense of a living a failed identity living a failed project it's where she starts singing ah yeah i was going to ask you about the song lyrics there so yeah um so tell us tell us what she's doing when when she starts singing so she is thinking about the false armistice which was a day in late 1918 when North American 
newspapers and other sources of current events wrongly reported that the Great War, the First World War, had ended. Mm-hmm. It, it did end shortly afterwards, but the false armistice was the false reporting of the end of the war. Mm-hmm. And people celebrated. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't over. Yeah. Smile a while, I bid you sad at you. When the clouds roll back, I'll come to you is part of the chorus to the song Till We Meet Again, which was popularized by Bing Crosby. And she may be thinking of the Bing Crosby version, but it's a 1918 song. And it's what sort of uh, we're, we're to imagine a soldier singing to a sweetheart he's leaving behind or something. That's right. Yeah, that's right. He's he's imagining himself as a soldier in the war. Is this is this for me? Or is this for that is for you, and oh, there is a straw for you uh, <laughs> yeah, on the table. Okay, enjoy. Nathan already got his. Yes, thank you very much. Okay. I need to grab my energy drink. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Bye. Okay, bye. Life intrudes on poetry. We love to see it, Steph. Yeah, and honestly, there's not a whole lot that you can do that's more Jurellian for reading of a late Jurel poem than being interrupted by a child. Yeah, good, good. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. So, but but uh, let's get back to the song. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's it's really sad, right? Mm-hmm. It's one of those songs that contains within itself the possibility that they'll never meet again. Right. Um, it's like have yourself a merry little Christmas. There's yeah, yeah. a whole set of of goodbye. I'll, I'll see you later. Emma? Songs, yeah. yeah. Um, uh-huh. Also, um, are you able to to uh, remind me to uh, practice buzzing before hop drift three times this week? Yes, I am. Can you eat dinner at Alia's house tomorrow? Uh, um, Can you ask I, her? I mean, possibly them, um, but so, I, oh, I could Alia's possibly eat. Um, dinner at Ford's house. That's where I'm going to be oh, tomorrow. Oh, okay. Be Can you ask them? Yeah, sure. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm aware that this podcast is unedited. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're just I rolling along. We're just rolling. That, by the way, was Cooper. And uh, I think a lot of you, especially if you uh, are interested in anime style art or in fantasy art, uh, we'll encounter Cooper's work good in, in a few years, but good. we're going to get back to the player piano. Yeah. We're going to get back to the player piano and, and, and we're going to get back to that song. Well, when which... the, cl- when the, when the clouds roll back, I'll come to you. Uh, even out of context seems like a, a highly, uh, ambiguous, um, kind of reassurance to provide. Uh, well, do, you know, does that mean what I'll come back to you as, you know, I'll be dead and um, and I'll, I'll I'll you'll see me in heaven. Um, no, or, it just yeah, means no. when the sun's shining. I think. Uh-huh. Like okay. when, the, when the sun shines. Yeah. But it could also mean when the sun shines in my heart or when the sun shines yeah. on the world and when the, the clouds of the war ha- are, are, are gone. Right. But it's and it's it's important because it's a melancholy song that promises a return that may never happen. And because it's uh, a song of the 19 teens. And this is someone, this, this person who's speaking is looking back on her life. She's looking back on her life using most of the senses at the body's disposal, right? The mm-hmm. taste of pancakes, the mm-hmm. sound of the song, the sound of mm-hmm. piano rolls, the feel and the tactile and kinesthetic sensations of brushing your hair. Yeah. She's looking back on the, the girl that she was. Yeah. Um, and thinking, 
what did I do with that? Who did she become? What happened to me? Yeah. And the answer is nothing. It feels like nothing. Yeah. Whatever it was that I was supposed to do with my life, I missed it. It's it's an incredibly poignant thought or experience to have. It is incredibly sad. Yeah. And it is in a tradition of romantic sadness about missed opportunity that can be universalized in some sense. Uh, as Jarrell says elsewhere, the ways we miss our lives are life. Yeah. Um, so you can universalize it. You can say none of us, and he says in, in his prose elsewhere, none of us have entirely fulfilled the promise that we all had as children. Every adult is a disappointment viewed from the perspective of the potential right. in a child. Right. And if, if only because we have to choose one life to live or a few, yeah. but not all it's of a, them. Yeah. It's a soap opera, if you like. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Okay. Life to live. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I, I want to, before we move to the next thread. Yeah. I, I wanna, don't want to move to it. Yeah. Stay okay. here. It, it is the poem zeroes in on, on this potentially very widespread feeling that if you want, you can say is existential is, is part of the condition of all human life. Um, but it also gives us a character who might or might not have reasons to feel that other people got to live their lives and she didn't. Yeah. And there is a universe in which this podcast becomes about queer theory and queer sadness and the kind of missed opportunities for queerness that constitute historical queerness in queer studies scholars like Heather Love and the yeah. early Chris Nealon. Yeah. Um, there is another universe in which this podcast goes into romantic autobiography and the way we, in, in a Wordsworthian view, just we learn who we are by looking back on our life and saying, well, that happened. Yeah, yeah. And, and there is a, a third universe in which we spend half an hour talking neither about missed opportunities for queerness nor about the existential conditions of living in a body that exists in time and aging, but instead about the cultural and historical circumstances around women of this generation, mm -hmm. which is not quite Jarrell's generation, but close. Yeah. Um, Jarrell would have been four years old when right. till we meet again right. came out so although this, it was you know, so even in his mind later. as he's writing this poem he's he's imagining himself as a woman who is older than him uh, yes by, you know, and by he half did a that. generation let's say yeah yes and he did that multiple times right well um, i i have a i have a question that i think is linked to what you're talking about steph but also um grounded in a in in the lines of the poem that immediately precede the song lyrics going home home to the hotel i began to hum um so there's an interesting kind of um sound play at work there but also you know the idea of home to the hotel i wonder what um that suggests to you about the 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 relation that the speaker of this poem has to rootedness, to her past, um, to being situated in the way you wanted to help us see um, in her um, yeah. gendered and social roles yeah. at this moment in history. Yeah. 
I, I, I just want to highlight those sounds. A poem like this that is so, so attentive to voice, it's easy to miss the sound play. Yeah, let's hear it. And it's it's full of sound play and it's full of repeated words and then similar words that play out along a string of connected acoustic effects. Uh, home, hotel, hum. Let's brush our hair mm-hmm. before we go to bed. I brush my mother's hair before she bobbed it. With, with a, a mature Jarrell poem, you can often track what the poem is about by looking at what words are repeated in each stanza. Right. Pasadena, ha- Pasadena, Pasadena. Mm-hmm. House, pancake, house, house, home, home. Mother, father, father, mother, father. Play, play, play. Um. So what you've done for us, and for if if this isn't obvious for people who aren't looking at it, is sort of track down the right hand margin of the poem, calling out words that get repeated often in the, in that terminal position of the line. There's a kind of story there, yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Although in in this one, he's he's got a very a better known poem called Next Day, where mm-hmm. the terminal positions repeat words more often instead mm-hmm. of rhymes, mm-hmm. uh, and it's he's kind of lampshading what he's doing here a lot of the keywords show up in terminal position only once and then show up midline over and over right right um as though something that wants to get emphasized is then sort of metabolized within the poem within the lines of the poem yeah. it's just present there as sort of part of the vocabulary yeah. of the poem moving yeah. on we go from a house a pancake house to a hotel that isn't home right to a home where she no longer lives because it was decades ago to mother and father and an attempt to play. Yeah. But play, I play. Plays, playing is what children do, right? And playing is I both an end in itself, it's supposed to be fun, and a kind of practice, as it is with other primates, a rehearsal for whatever the heck you're supposed to do as an adult. Mm-hmm. And she didn't learn to live because she didn't learn to play. She just learned to watch the world do its thing around her as the music of her life, which is not till we meet again, but mm. a Chopin waltz, yeah. which would have been a very popular sort of middle brow piece of what we now call classical music at the time as this waltz plays itself out and she's pretending to play it, which deprives her of the experience of making her own music. And it deprives her of the experience of, of choice. And it also deprives her of touch because she's not touching anyone. Now, biographically, if this woman has a grandson, right? She's uh, touched someone. She's touched someone or someone has touched her. Right. But but maybe not in a way that matters to her. Uh, yeah, and and Jarrell really leaves it leaves it open. Mm-hmm. The suggestion at the end, if only somehow I had learned to live, right, tells us that this woman is reasonably professionally successful. Either her job or someone around her can pay for her to stay in a hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, but. And I, I don't mean that she is professionally successful necessarily. I mean that that she's not experiencing material wants. Someone can write, someone right. can pay the hotel bill for her. Uh, 
but but she's really got an unlived life that goes from soup to nuts here. If only yeah. somehow I had learned to live a possibility that might be in our minds as readers. The first time through the poem is that this is a widow who's grieving, whose sadness comes from having lost the love of her life and whatever she's lost. It's not that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't, we don't, we don't have a lot to go on necessarily if, if we try to reconstruct the details of her life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to avoid having a discussion of Henry James here. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and I'm also trying to, that sounds like something Henry James would try to avoid as well. Oh, he avoided his whole life very <laughs> right. successfully. And yeah. yet paradoxically <laughs> it happened yeah. around him. Uh, I, I'm also trying to avoid pinning down. Yeah what are now well-known kinds of unlived lives yeah. because there's so many ways to feel that your life of course went past you but it, at some point you know i'm very happy with the book that i wrote about randall jarrell 20 years ago and i'm glad yeah. you like it and i hope people keep liking it uh i didn't know i was girl at the time uh, it's not clear what he knew. Yeah. People ask me if he was trans a lot. And uh, the answer that I give is we should give dead people the pronouns they took in life. Mm-hmm. It is is not okay to tell somebody what their identity is. Mm-hmm. However, there's a good deal of transness about what he taught himself to do as a writer yeah in his late work and this poem is a very good example of that and that's probably one of the reasons why it has spoken to me for so long even more strongly than some of his other you know equally intricate and feelingful poems yeah well it's um, it's, um St- stephanie it's a uh it's a profound um, insight I think you've just offered us, and and I and I want to um, I want to thank you. Yeah. Oh well, you know, two no babies with their baby. No, we have yeah. to talk about Freud a little bit. Yes, we I know. To, well, we should talk about family story. Hang on. Yeah, because I wanted to bring us right to the fourth and fifth stanzas of the poem, and and yeah. to and to situate them in this way. I mean, okay, so we have Randall Jarrell, a kind of um, uh, middle aged. Um, a uh, poet whose whose pronouns would have been he and his, right? Um, and he's got a beard and a sports yeah, car. Sure he's does. Married to a yeah, woman. yeah, yeah. Okay, all of that. And he's so he's writing a poem in which he's imagining himself, or he's speaking as though, or he's writing as though. If you don't like the speaking metaphor, he's in, in any case he's imagining he's himself creating a speaker. Yeah, from the position of a, a, a woman who's a bit older than him. Now that woman, then in the in the fourth stanza of the poem says, let's brush our hair before we go to bed. And the reader, before they get to the next line, might be a little confused by that line uh, because there are no quotation marks or anything. And then it says, I say to the old friend who lives in my mirror. Um, Okay, so now this um, older woman is talking to herself or to the version of herself whom she sees when she looks into the mirror. And that prompts a kind of via memory uh regression back to some childhood 
existence or life. So I, I want for you, Stephanie, to talk to us about what's happening in, in those stanzas and in that moment of the poem. She is looking at herself, something else that people do in drill a lot. She's seeing her face in the mirror and she's being kind to herself. Mm-hmm. She's befriending her own face. She's regarding herself and not being sad or disappointed by how she looks. Mm-hmm. She's regarding herself as an other worthy of care. Let's brush her hair before we go to bed. I love the consonant play in those lines too. And she's remembering when she learned to use a hairbrush on medium length or long women's hair. And that takes her back to a time when she didn't just look at her face, she inhabited her body. How long has it been since I hit my funny bone? Had a scab on my knee. She is seeing simultaneously her connection to the series of selves over time that have become her Mm. and her distance from the embodied potential of those younger selves. Mm -hmm. The lives that, as Ammon says, did not become. Yeah. Um, And, you know, this is, there's a, a sort of straight up, 20th century feminism reading of this poem that's about how girls are allowed to run around and use their bodies, but adult women are not. Right. There's a wonderful Dar Williams song, the folk singer Dar Williams called When I Was a Boy, that is about the different kinds of permissions given to girls and to boys and to men and women. And she's not this woman is, is remembering that when she was a girl, she could run around and she could inhabit her body. Mm-hmm. But that was something that she chose to give up or had to give up as she became a young woman and now an old woman. And she's having that thought sort of as she, I mean, you said cares for herself, brushing her hair and being kind to herself, but also, I mean, a, a, perhaps a more cynical reading of what's, implied in that gesture of brushing her hair is a kind of self-disciplining or self-fashioning or something, a kind of um, regulation of what's unruly about her body um, so as to make it presentable. I You don't hear that here, though. I don't hear that. I hear yeah. brushing your mother's hair before yeah. she bobbed it as a, a privilege for this young girl. I, I, I want to acknowledge that many poets and many of our listeners experience things like having to brush your hair and having to do the right hairstyle as a confinement. Mm-hmm. Nobody should have to practice high maintenance hair care if they don't want to. But yeah. I don't think this is like the second hair poem in a row that you've done, right? <laughs> well, not um, quite in a row, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not quite the gesture of mutuality and care that Elizabeth Bishop gives us in the shampoo, but I think this is a gesture yeah. of of love and of connection and of of privilege. It's great to have your mother say, Hey, you know, you, you're old enough to know how to do this. Let's have this moment of intimacy and trust that is shared hair care. And it's, it's like the other moments of intimacy and trust that she remembers with her mother and her father. Jarrell was a, a giant fan of, of Sigmund Freud. 
mm-hmm. he had probably read all of Freud, at least in English. Mm-hmm. Um, he did read some German. Uh, and one of the things about Jarrell's Freud is that it is, it, it, it's a Freud who's very much about family dynamics. Right. It's a Freud who's about how your parents inevitably screw, screw up. Mm-hmm. Everybody's parents screw up. All parents screw up. Mm. And this isn't, I don't know if this is in Freud. It, it might be, but it's in host Freudian psychoanalytic sort of clinical thought, like how to help people live more fulfilling lives. At some point you have to think about whether you can forgive your parents. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you have to forgive your parents. You know, dear listeners, lots of parents have done things that are kind of unforgivable. And their kids have dealt in other ways, and that's okay. But this is someone who is who wants to forgive her parents, especially since she looks like her mother now. Older than She's her mother was. She in the, says, yeah. she looks at her old friend in her mirror, and then she picks up a photograph, and she says, look at them. Now, her mother had her father and she doesn't seem to be with anyone. Right. But she's not comparing herself to her mother who was coupled. She's comparing herself to her mother who was alive then when she was a child and hadn't been hurt by growing up. And it's not her parents' fault. I don't blame you. You weren't old enough to know any better. Better, by the way, which is line terminal, develops out of the word bed. Yeah, that's bed, great. better, mm-hmm. best. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't turn into best. It turns into both. Mm-hmm. And then both turns into blame. You weren't to blame. And there's that armistice. Mm-hmm. The false armistice was false. The true armistice came later. But you don't get an armistice with your parents. You don't get everything being over. Right. It's not um, formalized in that way. It's, the it's relationship not their, is never over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's and it's not their fault. Whatever whatever your parents did to screw you up, this yeah. woman thinks, and it's it's both reassuring and terribly saddening to read this poem as a as a mom. Which I didn't have kids when I first read it, but you know now yeah. I have mm-hmm. a teen and a middle schooler whom you just heard. Yeah, everybody screws up. Um. Everybody screws up and everybody has the experience. Maybe, I don't know. I can't read your mind. Maybe it's special. Many people have some form of the experience that you didn't get to choose what happened to you. You don't get to choose how your kid turns out. You don't get to choose your parents. The involuntarity of life moving on and aging just opens up like a river coming to a place where there's a waterfall in those last eight stanzas where she shuts her eyes and we're completely in her imagination. I shut my eyes and there's our living room. Yeah. She shuts her eyes and she listens and she knows that she's not making that music. She is not in charge. She's never been in charge of how her life turned out. She didn't even learn to play properly. And, and the poem almost faints for me at the idea that it wants to be universalized, that we've all experienced 
the sense of what happened. I grew old, life went on without me. And then it zeroes in at this child doing something that not every child does, which is pretend to play the piano instead of playing it. And her unlived life and her body that didn't belong to her then, that she didn't take action with then, that she's not taking action with now. She's just standing in front of her mirror, maybe, with her eyes closed at the end of the day. The sense of helplessness there belongs to this character and just opens up the heart of this character and... I'm at least blown away. And it's also doing this kind of all out pathos at the end of a poem is, as we now say, a risk. The poem invites us and even more strongly invites 1960s readers to dismiss it as sentimental, to say, you know, what a tearjerker, what a piece of Oscar bait, uh, you know, what an old lady. Ah, and that was, in fact, the response that a lot of Jarrell's poems yeah. got at the time. Uh-huh. Um, speaking as an old lady, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Not I'm so glad old. I don't see myself in this poem. No, I'm, I'm 52. Yeah. Uh, speaking as a middle-aged woman, I yeah, see myself fair. in this poem less than I used to uh, because I feel that my life is is my own more than I used to. You're playing uh, the piano. But it is a, what? You're playing the piano. I'm not a very good piano player. I mean, uh, but, metaphorically. Yeah, actually. Yeah. Um, this is a woman who, like all of the women in Jarrell's poems, by the time she's an adult, has not been able to live her life. Well, that's not true. The End of the Rainbow's an exception. Who, like most of the women, the adult women in Jarrell's poems, and The End of the Rainbow is probably the best exception. It's a very strange, long poem. This is a woman who has not been able to live her life outside of what, as we now say, patriarchy yeah, and compulsory heterosexuality has made her do and prevented her from doing. And it is a kind of helplessness that is emotional and that is political, if you want it to be, yeah. and that is personal, if you're the kind of reader who responds to this poem yeah, uh, as, a, as an emotional trajectory. Yeah. Stephanie, the, you've given us just a heart-stoppingly beautiful reading of this poem, and I want to thank you for it. Um, I also am, am cognizant of the time and and know we don't have very much time left. Okay. And I, want, I wonder if I can ask you um, a final question that might bring in some of what you've already uh, raised for us and might introduce a, a new topic as well. Yes. Can I throw in one more sentence, though? Of course you can. As long as you don't, as long as you, as long as you it's stay a short to one. the end of our... Uh, uh, it's a short as, sentence. As long as you have time, Steph, I have it's a, time. Oh, it's a short sentence for me. Uh, I've been thinking about the emotional trajectory in this poem and about what it says about the culture of this imaginary older woman lives in. And I, I just want to remind anyone who's been rereading and following along how structurally complex and, and elegant this poem is, the way that the word plays recurs, the way that the unrolling, the regularity of a piano roll copies the 
regular unrolling of these roughly pentameter lines and their five line units and the way that this poem like, is a masterpiece like five, of- five lines like five fingers to a hand at, at a piano maybe right exactly yeah yeah, yeah. the five these this stanzas some of which come to a complete stop and some of which are enjammed over the stanza break this is a poem that is a masterpiece of speech rhythm and of polyrhythmic oral composition within the limits of the rough pentameter line that you all preferred and i want to just yell really loud about his technical gifts because they aren't recognized enough no, they aren't. And I think you've you've done, uh, a, I mean, not just today, but in your career, have done a service in in trying to uh, bring Jarrell back to readers who would love him um, if they read Thank him. Um, my question for you has to do with, in a way, with your relation to Jarrell. Sure. And, you, I mean, you, impl- you, you implied earlier that, that people... Um, are asking are, are curious about your perspective as a trans <laughs> as a trans woman yeah. about the possibility that Jarrell was trans at a time before perhaps he had the vocabulary to describe it or the social conditions that would allow for an expression of it or what have you. Yeah. Um, when I when I first um, you know you wrote you wrote your book on Jarrell twenty years ago and and I purchased it and read it then and thank you well yeah sure and i thought um oh it makes sense to me that that um that that this author is writing on this poet because uh, for reasons having nothing to do with transness you know in my mind at the time (laughs) but but because i thought oh here's someone who's identifying with um as you described jarell in the little potted biography you gave to us at the beginning of this um conversation as somebody who was had a, a career as a critic and who was perhaps most well-known as a critic, but who never stopped writing poetry. And, um, and I thought uh, there, there must be some curiosity or identification that you're feeling with the object of your study in that sense as someone who was a prolific critic yourself and, um, and never has never stopped writing poetry yourself. And before you jump in with an answer, cause I see you brimming with, with thought here. <laughs> let, oh let no, me, let, no, no, no. It's good. Let me say the last bit of this, which is, it strikes me that someone who sits down to a player piano and whose fingers hover over the keys that start moving themselves, you know, who's not actually playing the piano yeah, might feel a kind of, um, I don't know how to put it, but a, a kind of anxiety or a kind of um, feeling of regret or um, something that might not be unlike the way someone who has made a living and made a career writing about poems feels when she sits down to write her own poems. Um, I wonder if there's some sense in which the the object at the heart of this poem that we only get to really at the end of the poem the player piano namely the, the object that gives the poem its title is in some way an image of the poet critic as Jarrell experienced that role or even as you experienced that role Stephanie is 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 that an idea worth considering yeah I think you're right and they hadn't seen that dimension to it 
Mm -hmm. I, th I think you're right. Um, Jarrell was interested in music listening and in how to write about music listening. One of his role models and friends was the composed music critic B.H. Hagen. They wrote for The Nation together. And he would refer to, to Hagen as a model for music listening. But not just if you're not just listening, but pretending to play the piano, mm -hmm. but not really playing the piano, which is, is what's happening here. Um, in the poem, it's a child doing it. It's not an adult. But of course, we depict children doing things all the time if we want to imagine doing them, but want plausible deniability, and it's not something an adult would do. And yeah, you're putting yourself in the place of the person playing the piano, but not playing the piano. And that has a whole lot of similarities with what we do as literary critics of a certain kind, the kind that I think you are sometimes, and I, I like to think I am, yeah. uh, people who try to inhabit the, the persona inside the poem or the implied author, or to say, among other things, what could this poem have been thinking? What is it like to live inside this poem? And we don't get to choose the words in the poem if we didn't write them, but we get to imagine saying them and, and living with them. And we play in, in some sense that we are putting them together to figure out how it's done. So yeah, this, this could absolutely be a poem about aging and realizing that you're a critic. Uh -huh. And uh, you know, when his collected poems came out in 1969, Helen Vendler, who I agree with more often than not, as you probably know, wrote that Jarrell put his genius into his criticism and his talent into his poetry, uh -huh. which is an Oscar Wilde reference, as you may uh -huh. also know. Uh -huh. Uh, which starts a whole bunch of hairs, but Jarrell, I think, had doubts about whether his poems were for real, whether they would last. He knew that they weren't as profound and subtle as bishops. Um, I mean, but whose were? Whose are? Yeah. Right. Um, and it is a poem that begins in self-doubt and self-affirmation and ends in so much so much resignation and so much regret and it solicits the reader which honestly a lot of Jarrell poems do, especially late Jarrell. It solicits the reader to go over and say, no, you have done something. Your life does matter. Look, you have a hand. Here is your hand. It is in dialogue with a much earlier poem that I think anyone, it seems like no one has noticed except me and possibly the critic Richard Flynn called A Ghost, A Real Ghost, in which a woman dies and comes back to life and takes a while to realize that she's a ghost because she can see everything that she saw during life. It's it's like the R Town Cemetery scene. Yeah, yeah. As another I was gonna say. Yeah. Uh, and and she realizes that um, a ghost, and it's the end of this earlier poem. Uh, what is a ghost except a being with no access to the universe? A being. What is a ghost except a being without access to the universe that she has not yet managed to forget? Mm. Um. Jarrell is, is, in this poem, the implied figure in this poem is living a life that's no longer his and maybe never was. 
and it's so close the the life that this woman could once have lived if things had been different is so close to her at the end a half inch a half inch i'm tempted to connect it to robert lowell's underrated poem july in washington one of the great washington dc poems and Jarrell's one of the great washington dc poets um where where lowell if i'm remembering his poem correctly uh imagines that the the humidity of washington dc will lead us entirely out of our bodies Hmm. Uh, and only our fingertips could could drag us back yeah that is july in washington right i think you've got it right steph but i I, i'm i'm now testing my memory as well i could i could turn i could swivel my chair around and pull the volume of lowell off the shelf which maybe you see behind me but we're finding out oh um we can't leave our listeners with misinformation no, we can't, but I can always, um, this gives me an opportunity to tell our listeners that when the episode comes out, there will also be a newsletter that gets sent out with, with the episode. And that newsletter will contain links to Stephanie's books, and it will also contain thoughts about today's conversation. And I'll also tell us which Lowell poem Stephanie and I have been a half inch away from naming at the end of this conversation. Oh no. I think it's I'm okay. Try it one so. more time. I'm going to try it one more time. Yeah. And and then I'm going to give up. Yeah. That's it. It's it July is. in Washington. It Perfect. seems the least little shove. Will, okay. Read it. We wish the river had another shore. Yeah. It seemed the least little shove would land us there that only the slightest repugnance of our bodies. We can no longer control could drag us back. Uh. It, it, it's a poem about being stuck in your body. Yeah. Stuck in the adult body that you didn't choose. It's getting older, like it or not. Uh huh. I, I have I answered your final question. I'm not oh, sure that I have. I think you have. I mean, what's so interesting to me about your answer, and I know we're we're sort of I'm straining both your um your time for us and and perhaps our listeners' attention at this point. But I guess what I would say, since you asked is you've so, I think, poignantly described the position of the critic mm-hmm. who sits well, down have. who sits down to to write about a poem and uh, um and try well, what you've said is that the critic tries to imagine themselves having written the poem, right? Uh, tries yeah. to tries as you know, it's it's a kind of um it's a kind of uh, positioning that's in the subjunctive mood or something and and tries to see the poem as a live thing that one can inhabit as though from the inside. I think the piece of it that is, has been left implied, but, but not um, explored yet in this conversation, but I think that's okay is Uh what happens when that critic like you, but not like me, (laughs) the rest of the time sits down to write poems herself um, and what oh. what what happens to the role of the critic when you're at the poet's desk? Yeah, um, I, but maybe that's I a harder question to answer, or maybe it's not even as as interesting a question to answer in, at this. No, moment. that's a great that's a great question, and we can end there, and I can answer it if you want. Well, but yeah, we'll have to talk about werewolves. 
Okay, let's hear something so, about werewolves, okay. and then we're gonna release we're gonna release our readers back okay. into the world. Go ahead. Okay, yeah. So this is a poem about all kinds of, of frustration and, and sadness, and it just reaches out to me. Um, and and I, uh, Cameron, you you've just given me another reason it it's always spoken to me because I'm I was someone from you know when I was a sad, ridiculous teenager wanted to write about works of art and yell about my favorite things in songs and poems and, you know, shoes. And also want, I want people to love my own poems and I like writing them. Um, about seven or eight years ago, I spent like four hours in a snowstorm in Buffalo in order to get to an event where I was supposed to talk about being a poet critic and what does it mean to be a poet hyphen critic? And the answer that I figured out on the tarmac in, in Buffalo was that I want to be like a werewolf. I do not want to be like a vampire. Uh-huh. I think I get it, but go on. A vampire poet critic, and there are a lot of them, is deceptive and claims to be doing one thing while invisibly doing another thing because they say that they're being a critic and helping you read somebody else's poetry, but they're actually consciously and intentionally making a path for their own poems and trying to create more readers for their own poems. Okay. Um, and they have problems dealing with poets and poems that are nothing like them. And, and view them as competition to be eliminated in sneaky vampire ways. Well, that um, does not sound like you. So describe the I werewolf for not. me. Okay, yeah. so the thing about a werewolf is that if you're a werewolf, you're two things. Right. Um, but you're not the two things at the same time or, you know, not outwardly. And you don't do things, you, you, you just... Uh, couple days a month or when the moon is full or when other conditions obtain, you are very obviously uh, a furry, fangy, clawy creature with one set of abilities and disabilities. And the rest of the time, uh, you are a largely hairless biped with <laughs> fingernails instead of claws. And, you know, but maybe the werewolf wakes up in the morning with um, a bit bedraggled from the night spend being the wolf. <laughs> oh, all the time. But yeah. you still have to be a person when you person. Right. <laughs> right. And you still a werewolf when you're a werewolf and, and you can't help it. <laughs> and I like to think that uh, I go out and hunt in packs of poets mm -hmm. uh, when I'm wolfing out. Yeah. And that I am a human who's does the same things that other humans could do when I'm being a critic and trying to help people learn to love the poetry of among others, Randall Jarrell. Well, um, no one could, could have um, listened to you now or have, have read your work and disagreed with that, uh, with that statement that you've just articulated as a hope for yourself. I think it's a hope realized Stephanie. Um, so listen, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today about Jarrell and the player piano. And I want to um, 
thank our listeners for um, for attending to this poem with us. And I want to invite you, dear listeners, um, to to subscribe to the podcast, um, to leave us a rating or a review if if you like what you hear, and to um, and to stay tuned for the episodes I have coming because um, I think and- they'll be exciting ones, Stephanie. Yeah, you have a last word I mean, for how us. How can they? If let's say they want to subscribe, let's say let's yeah. say I want to subscribe to your newsletter. Yeah, oh, where would yeah. you go online to do that? Yeah, it's it's a Substack newsletter, but you'll see it linked. Um, you'll see a link to it um, in the episode notes for any of my for any ep- any episode of this podcast. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts and. Um, the Substack. If you just look for my name on Substack, you'll you'll see it there. Um, um, you can find it in other places too. Follow me on Twitter, and you'll see you'll see more information there as well. I um, I've just subscribed. Amazing! Thank you so okay. much, Stephanie. Not not just for subscribing, but for for appearing uh, on this podcast with us and for the conversation today. It truly meant a lot to me. It's a real honor, and I love doing it. And thank you for spending time with me and with Randall Jarrell. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.